You're listening to The Jeff Caven Show, episode 55, Everyone Needs a Papa, the scriptural basis for the papacy. Welcome to the show again. Glad you could join me this week as we talk about really all things discipleship and uh, walking with Christ. Very, very important details of prayer and scripture study and uh, looking for opportunities to share Christ with other people. I hope you're doing well. I really do. At the time of this particular broadcast, we're we are uh, kind of coming towards the end of, of winter and uh, looking forward to spring and of course summer. And it's in the middle of Lent, and I hope you're having a good Lent. I'm not sure uh, what you gave up or where your heart is at in that, but I hope that it is uh, fruitful and that you are making progress with your your walk with the Lord. Just a reminder, just keep going, keep going, and uh, spend this these 40 days seeking God and really looking at your own life and learning and making the, the uh, changes that need to be made. Heard a really good quote this last week, and I want to share it with you. It was um, Monsignor Shea, and uh, he was give, he's out in uh, Mary, uh, Mary uh, St. Mary, Mary's University in Bismarck, and uh, youngest president of a university that I'm aware of, at least. And he gave a, a great homily for Dr. Don Briel, who was heading up the Catholic Studies program at St. Thomas in St. Paul, and he passed away uh, just recently. And in that homily, Monsignor Shea had quoted uh, Don Briel in a, a beautiful quote that has really, it really impacted me. And, uh, and I, I thought it would be good to share with you. And he, he said that, that Don would often say, uh, are you going to become a student of your life or are you going to continually be a victim? And I think that's really a good, a really good uh, quote, a good thing to think about. Are you, are you going to be a student of your life? In other words, are you going to learn from your life? Are you going to learn from mistakes and learn from victories and learn from other people and then make the necessary changes? Or are you just going to be a victim for the rest of your life? I, I hope not. You know, I hope we can learn from our life and the mistakes that we make and we all make mistakes, don't we? We all do. But do we learn from them and do we make the correction mid-path, mid, uh, you know, uh, and go the right way? So I'm praying for you and praying that you will continue to walk as that strong disciple of Jesus Christ. Uh, just a quick, uh, you know, reminder, uh, it's not enough to just listen. It's not enough to just read the Bible and... and um, and to listen to uh, radio and watch television and so forth. We really do have to put this stuff into practice, and we really do have to act like disciples on a daily basis. Uh, and that means we, we study God's Word. We read the Word every, every day. My wife and I, we read the Word every morning uh, with each other. Uh, but I would also recommend that you have a time of Lexio Divina, that you, you have an opportunity to talk with God on a daily basis. And, um, and I have some podcasts. I have some shows earlier. You can look through and see some of the shows where I spoke about Lexio Divina, uh, getting a fresh word from God every, every single day. We do need that time of prayer. Discipleship is about relationship. Uh, it is not about knowledge. It's about relationship. It's about knowing his heart and mind and, and then uh, doing what he does. It's about imitating him 
on a daily basis, him being Jesus Christ, the king of the king of the universe. And that's really what it all comes down to, doesn't it? You know, as, as I turn on the news and I, I see the, uh, the, uh, the daily war between Fox and CNN and uh, all the other things going on in the world, I'm reminded that uh, we, have to, we have to cut through all this and really focus on what's important in our lives. I've had a couple of really great weeks uh, recently. I, my wife and I just got back from Gulfport, Mississippi. Uh, I want to say a great thanks to Father Ryan in Gulfport, Mississippi. You are doing an incredible job there. Great foundation laid by Father Mark Ropel, who was in Gulfport and is now in Hattiesburg at St. Thomas there at Southern Miss. And, um, and he is doing just an incredible job too. And we, we, I spoke in Gulfport, then went up to Hattiesburg. And in Hattiesburg, it was one of those trips where Emily went with me and we had just a great, great time. Went to sh a good friend, Sean, his, his house, uh, and had a, a crawfish boil, which we don't do a lot of those up in Minnesota, <laughs> to be honest with you. Uh, especially as I'm looking out, at my, I'm in the cabin right now in the woods, in the log cabin, and I see about two feet of snow on the ground uh, that we came back to. Uh, but uh, we had a crawfish boil. Uh, we also went um, motorcycle riding with some guys on Saturday morning before I did the, the seminar on walking toward eternity. That was fun. I mean, we, a bunch of guys got together and we rode for a couple of hours and just good fellowship. And uh, I also met with the Focus missionaries. There's uh, four of them down there. I think four, maybe five. Four of them that I, I remember that um, they're doing an incredible job. Uh, down there at Southern Miss, the the school where the great Brett Favre was quarterback, <laughs> Far, uh, Brett and Deanna down there in Hattiesburg, and um, uh, I got to say these Focus missionaries are just doing a great job on Southern Miss, and that's where we met with the conference and had a good a good turnout and uh, met some really nice people, the Hemet family, Dr. Hemet and his uh, wonderful family, and just to hear the good work that everybody is doing down there was very, very encouraging. And uh, I was also in Tampa uh, at a men's conference uh, recently, and we're going down to Baton Rouge. Uh, we're going to be doing a, a conference down there in Baton Rouge. So we kind of feel like snowbirds right now from Minnesota. We we're keep going down south, you know, in the, in the winter, and I'm afraid my wife is getting a little addicted to this, so pray for us. <laughs> Just kidding. Hey, I enjoy your email, and uh, many of you have said, I posed the question, would you like me to simply email you the show notes every week? And uh, many of you, I'm, uh, most of you said, yeah, I would really like them. And so uh, if you would, give me, a, give me a shout out here, and we're about to pull the trigger on this, so to speak, and we, I think we might be doing it, uh, but I need to hear one more week from you. If you would like me to send you the show notes, will you do me a favor? Uh, will, you, will you email me? And my email is thejeffcavenshow at ascensionpress.com. I'll say it again. That's thejeffcavenshow at ascensionpress.com. And you can also go to iTunes. You can go to the Google Music Play uh, store and, and leave your notes. Leave notes. Leave comments. That, that really does help with, with the show. Hey, I'm going to be talking today uh, about a topic that is, is a, is, it's really a foundational topic. So many times people ask me, what's the scriptural foundation for the papacy? And, and that's a good question. Uh, anything that we uh, you know, build our lives on, I think we need to find scriptural foundations for it. And certainly with the papacy, there is no shortage at all. And uh, when it comes to the papacy, 
this is not something that we fight about, you know? Uh, that, that's not my goal here is, a, is some kind of apologetic war. Uh, I'm not into that, to be honest with you. I, I'm just going to tell you what the Bible says and what the church has consistently said from the very beginning. But I want to focus on this show about um, the, the, the scriptural basis, at least to give you two, three, four points that, that you could take with you if you were entering a conversation with somebody else concerning the, the papacy. So I'm going to go uh, deep into Matthew 16, which is really the uh, I'll build my church upon the rock text, and we're going to look at that. And uh, I was just uh, in Caesarea Philippi, where that took place, just a few weeks ago in Israel. In fact, if you want to go to Israel with me, I go every January. You can go to my website, jeffcavens.com, look up the tab, pilgrimages, and we're already starting to gain a lot of interest for next year. So when it opens up in a couple of weeks, get on there quick. Get your deposit in. I think it's only $300. Get your name in there and your place secured because we sell out every every year. We just have an, an incredible pilgrimage to the Holy Land. And uh, we hardly even tell anyone about it because the people that went before start telling everybody else. And before you know it, we're inundated, which is a good thing. Yay. Thank you. Appreciate that. Well, there's been 266 popes. Pope Francis is the 266 pope. And um, that's a lot of popes. And there has been this, this chain of popes from Peter on that has been a very big gift to the church. Uh, but the question is, is it biblical? Is the papacy biblical or is it something that Catholics made up as a way to control people, as a way to, uh, to just get across their views? Well, no, they haven't. It is scriptural. It is uh, based in the Old Testament, fulfilled in the New Testament. And we want to take a look at that. You know, when all is said and done and all the various doctrines discussed among Christians and, and debated, the real question is, by what authority? do you speak? By what authority do men speak? And, and, if we, and if we can identify the authority and the voice of Christ in the modern world today, all other issues will be settled as our faith will rest on the certitude of Christ's delegated authority. That is really important. That's what we're looking for when we study the papacy. We're looking for Christ's delegated authority. I don't care for the most part what a lot of people have to say on television and in other places, I want to know what Christ's delegated authority has to say about issues, teaching, doctrine, theology, and all of that, world issues and things. Now, every person who goes by the name Christian does, has a, does have a source of authority on which they determine what they'll believe and practice. And although they would contend that the Bible is the source of truth, the Bible does not come with a separate set of instructions. A book in and of itself can't define itself any more than the Constitution of the United States can define itself. Some would call this in theological circles the perspicuity of perspicuous nature of Scripture. It explains itself, and it doesn't in all situations. A human agent is needed, just like the Constitution. And for the Protestant Christian, uh, the authority may be a popular television evangelist, an author, a school teacher, or, or even themselves. Now, throughout salvation history, God has always established his authority among his people. When his authority cannot be identified, what happens? Chaos breaks out, leaving people with a sense of uncertainty. And as the Good Shepherd, Jesus, he established his kingdom and he left us with organized leadership. Praise God. Organized leadership for the purpose of passing on 
all that he taught in equipping us to lead the life we were meant to live as children of God. Now, I want to share with you just a little bit from the Catechism to set a foundation here as we then begin to look into Scripture. And I think that this will help you in terms of, okay, what does the Catholic Church say about the papacy? What does the Catholic Church actually teach, you know, about, about the, uh, the papacy? And then we'll look at some of the Scripture. And this is from paragraph 881 and 882 of the Catechism. It says that when Christ instituted the Twelve, he constituted them in the form of a college or permanent assembly at the head of which he placed Peter, chosen from among them. Just as by the Lord's institution, St. Peter and the rest of the apostles constitute a single apostolic college, so in like fashion, the Roman pontiffs, Peter's successor, and the bishops, the successors of the apostles, are related with and united to one another. They are together, okay? They make up the magisterium, by the way, as well. That's the teaching office of the church. Now, the Lord made Simon alone, whom he named Peter the rock of his church. He gave him the keys of his church and instituted uh, him shepherd of the whole flock. The office of binding and loosing, which we're going to look at here in Matthew 16, was given to Peter. And it was also assigned to the College of Apostles, united to its head. And this pastoral office of Peter and the other apostles belongs to the church's very foundation and is continued by the bishops under the primacy of Peter today. Now, the Pope, Bishop of Rome, and Peter's successor is the perpetual and visible source and foundation of the unity both of the bishops and the whole company of the faithful. For the Roman pontiff, by reason of his office as vicar of Christ and as pastor of the entire church, has full, supreme, and universal power over the whole church, a power which he can always exercise unhindered. Okay? So that's from paragraph 881 uh, and 882. Now, the text that people want to argue about, and it's the text that the, the keys to the, of the kingdom, the papacy, comes from, is Matthew chapter 16. Now, Matthew chapter, chapter 16 is a very pivotal chapter because it is, uh, it is the, really the, the last thing that, that Jesus is going to do before he sets uh, his, his compass to Jerusalem to go and, and die for the sins of the world. This is the last thing that, that he is going to do. And so I'm going to read to you from paragraph 13 to 19 as the foundation, and then we'll take a look at some of the particulars of it. Uh, it says, Now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, which, by the way, is at the very northern part of Israel, it's on the Lebanese border. We go there on our pilgrimages. He asked his disciples, who do men say that the Son of Man is? And they said, well, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. And he said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church." and the powers of death shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in 
heaven. There it is. That's the text. That's the text right there. Now, uh, I want to go through just some, some parts of this with you and give you some points that you can share, uh, absorb yourself, but also share uh, with other people. The first thing that Jesus asks them up at Caesarea Philippi is he says, who do men say that the Son of Man is? Now that title, Son of Man, uh, for those that don't understand the Jewish roots of the faith, will will oftentimes juxtapose Son of Man with Son of God like this. They'll say, well, the Son of Man speaks of his humanity and Son of God speaks of his divinity. Couldn't even be further from the truth. Uh, the Son of Man is a title that you will find in Daniel chapter 7, as well as many other places in Scripture. And it's the one title uh, that Jesus refers to himself by more than all other titles combined. Son of Man is a, is a, a phrase, a title for the Messiah. And you can read about it in Daniel chapter 7. The Son of Man will receive a kingdom and all power and authority will be given to him. Okay? So Son of Man is... Uh, uh, a title. And who do, he says, who do they say the Son of Man is? And there's several guesses, and they're wrong. You know, John the Baptist, Elijah, Jeremiah, or, or one of the other prophets. Wrong, 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 wrong. <laughs> and he said that to them, but who do you say that I am? Because he is the Son of Man. And it's Peter. Peter is the one that replies. He steps up to the plate, so to speak, and he says, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. You are the Christ the Son of the living God. Now, many Protestants will, and, and again, this is not an argument. We're not, this is not putting people down. We're just looking at what people teach. Many Protestants will say, well, that, that is the foundation right there. That is the rock right there. It's his, it's his uh, statement. It's his confession. You are Christ, the Son of the living God. Well, we know that to be true, but that isn't the foundation. That is not the rock. Jesus said, you are Christ, or, or Peter said, you are Christ, the son of the living God. And, and Jesus answered, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my father who's in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter. And on this rock, I'll build my church and the powers of death shall not prevail against it. So the key statement there is in verse 18. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock, I will build my church. Now, what is that rock? What is Jesus doing uh, during this discourse? Well, he's building his church, number one. is it He is building his church. Number two, he is going to establish authority in his church. And, and his church, his kingdom, and his church, really those are synonymous terms, the kingdom and, and church. He says, I'll build my church upon the rock and I'm going to give some keys. All right. Now, that term rock is used metaphorically for in, in the Bible for protection or refuge and is often in relationship to both God and human leaders. In the Psalms, God is referred to as the rock. We read in Psalm 95, 1, O come, let us sing to the Lord. Let us make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. In the prophet Isaiah, he records that Abraham is a rock. It says in Isaiah 51, verses 1 and 2, Hearken to me, you who pursue deliverance, you who seek the Lord. Look to the rock from which you were hewn, and to the quarry from which you were digged. Look to Abraham, your father, and to Sarah who bore you. For when he was but one, I called him, and I blessed him, uh, I blessed him and made him many. And so we've got a, we, we have 
a, a consistent basis here for both God and humans being referred to as a rock. If anyone says, well, rock always refers to God, it's not true. I mean, Abraham and Sarah are also called rocks, all right? So he says, uh, he, he speaks of Peter as this rock that he's going to build his church on. Now, this, this is an interesting thing because, because a rock means something to the Jews of the first century. It means something. And what it means is it, it means where the temple was built. You see, in Jesus' day, there was a special rock, and that rock was on Mount Moriah. And Solomon was the one who built the first temple. And where do you think he built it? He built it on that rock. If you see pictures of Mount Moriah today, the, the Temple Mount area, it's a golden dome. Uh, Islam has a dome there, the Dome of the Rock. And it's a big golden dome. That's the place that Solomon uh, built the first temple. He built that first temple. In fact, 2 Chronicles 3.1 says, Then Solomon began to build the house of the Lord in Jerusalem on Mount Moriah, where the Lord had appeared to David his father, at the place that David had appointed on the threshing floor of Ornan the Jebusite. Okay, so this rock has a, has a name in Hebrew called the Evan Hashetiah. I'll have all this in the show notes for you. Evan Hashetiah. And the Jews believed that there was really no other place that Solomon could build the temple because that rock has special, special significance. The Jews believed that when the waters parted after creation, that this stone was the first to appear. And they also believed that this stone was the very stone upon which Abraham offered Isaac. Now, why is this important? Because Solomon chooses to build the temple at this location in 2 Chronicles 3. The temple is built at the same spot where Abram offered Isaac. And the Jews believed that the only place the temple could be built was on Moriah. And so the rabbis saw this stone as the pillar of the earth, the literal navel. All right. Now, you might remember that uh, it was brought up that uh, in Matthew chapter 12, in verse 42, that the, the question came up, you know, uh, Jesus said, the powers of hell will not prevail. It was, it was believed that the Evan Hashetia covered, get this, the opening to Hades. The Jews believed that in the first century that the temple covered this rock, which had a shaft, down to Hades. So it was the presence of God, the kingdom of God. It was the, the authority of God that blocked the work of hell. That's why the temple was built on the Evan Hashetia at, at Mount Moriah. Now, Solomon was referred to as a wise builder, right? He was, he was referred to as a wise builder, Matthew chapter 12. But Jesus said someone greater than Solomon is here, and he's building the new temple. And so when Jesus says to Peter in Matthew 16, upon this rock I'll build my church, and the gates of Hades, the gates of hell will not prevail. Trust me. It was not lost on anybody there. They knew the imagery that he was, he was teaching, that, that the Old Testament had the temple on that rock and it stopped the work of, of Hades. And Jesus was going to build his kingdom, his new temple, upon Peter 
and the gates of hell will not prevail. Very, very powerful. Very powerful there. Okay. And, and I'm, I'm going to take a break right here. When I come back, I want to continue with this. And I want to talk about this stone, Peter, from the book of Daniel. And then I want to talk about the keys for just a few minutes and, uh, and go a little bit deeper with the scriptural basis for the papacy. You're listening to The Jeff Caven Show. It's hard to live out your Catholic faith on your own. In fact, the Bible reveals that we need a community of people to help us on our journey of faith. If you're interested in finding that community by joining or starting a small group study, visit ascensionpress.com and sign up for a free Ascension account. With your account, you'll get all the tools you need to start walking with others towards Christ. Welcome back. We have a, a little bit longer of a show going this week uh, because we're talking about a deep topic, and that is the scriptural basis of the, the papacy. And the text is Matthew 16, uh, where we know that, uh, that Peter confesses, you are Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus said, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. Okay, And I say to you, you are Peter which means small rock, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail. That is a total parallel to the Old Testament reality that Solomon built the temple on Mount Moriah, the Evan Hashatiah, the capstone of the world that covered the, the, the shaft down to Hades. That's what was taught by the rabbis in the first century. I'm not saying that's scriptural. I'm saying that's what was taught. That's why they believe the temple was built there. And Jesus is, is in a sense, riffing off of this and saying, Peter, this, this, this kingdom that I'm building, it will not let the gates of hell prevail. And upon this rock, I'm going to build my my church. It wasn't lost at all on those who were, who were listening. Now, there's a real interesting text in the Old Testament that speaks about a small stone toppling kingdoms and growing into a worldwide movement, which is what Peter ended up doing, right? And this is in Daniel chapter 2, where in Daniel chapter 2, uh, Daniel interpreted the dream of Nebuchadnezzar. Uh, which Nebuchadnezzar had a dream of a statue, and that statue had a, 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 um, a head of, of gold, right? Shoulders of silver, a body of bronze, feet of iron mixed with clay. And, and, and it was Daniel that gave the interpretation of that dream to Nebuchadnezzar, and, and here's how the interpretation went. Now, this is just prior to Jesus coming on the scene. This is later in the Old Testament. Uh, Daniel said, okay, I see the statue you're talking about, Nebuchadnezzar, and, and here, here it is. It's, the dream is about four successive kingdoms. You, O Nebuchadnezzar, the Babylonians, you're the head of gold. You reign supreme. <laughs> Yay. And after that will come another kingdom. After the Babylonians, another kingdom, that's the shoulders of silver. Those are the Medo-Persians. And then a body of bronze. Okay, those will be the Greeks coming after the Medo-Persians. And then feet of iron mixed with clay, that will be Rome. But then he saw a small stone coming down and striking the statue in the head, crushing the entire statue. 
this little stone grows and grows until it becomes a mighty mountain covering the world. This stone is the kingdom of God. And Jesus' statement to Peter is a fulfillment of Daniel chapter 2. It's a fulfillment of Daniel chapter 2. The little stone is now grown and covers the world. Now, there's another thing that's very powerful here that, uh, that, that I want to share with you. And that is that in Matthew 16, Jesus does something bold. He says to Peter, I'm going to give you the keys to the kingdom. Now, my friend, that is very important. This is critical because the keys refer to an office. They refer to an office in the Old Testament, which we could call the prime minister. It has a title in Hebrew, and I'll say it slow for you. It, it is the Al-Habayit. Al-Habayit. That is the one who is over the household. It's the prime minister. And the prime minister is in charge of the kingdom in the Old Testament. If the king is sick or gone, that's when the prime minister takes over. Now, fortunately, we have a text in Isaiah 22 that gives the job description of the Al-Habayit, the prime minister. And what I want you to listen for are keys here because it's the only time that we're going to see it is that the prime minister in the kingdom of David has keys. He is the leader. All right? This is critical. And in Protestant Bibles and Catholic Bibles alike, you'll see a, a cross-reference from Isaiah 22, verses 15 through 25, and Matthew 16 with the keys. And then when I'm done reading this, I'm going to ask you a simple question. Thus says the Lord God of hosts, Come to this steward, to Shevna, who is over the household, that's Al-Habayit, and say to him, What have you to do here, and whom have you here that you have hewn here a tomb for yourself? You who hew a tomb on the height and carve a habitation for yourself in the rock. Behold, the Lord will hurl you away violently, O you strong man. He will seize firm hold on you and whirl you round and round and throw you like a ball into a wide land. There you shall die, and there shall be your splendid chariots, you shame of your father's house. I will thrust you from your office, and you will be cast down from your station. Okay, so this is like the, uh, the doing away with one prime minister, and they're going to bring another one in, right? This, old, this one didn't do such a hot job. Verse, 19, verse 20, In that day I will call my servant Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah, and I will clothe him with your robe and will bind your girdle on him and will commit your authority to his hand and he shall be a father, Papa, to the inhabitants of Jerusalem and to the house of Judah. And I will place on his shoulder the key of the house of David. He shall open and none shall shut and he shall shut and none shall open. I will fasten him like a peg in a sure place and he will become a throne of honor to his father's house and they will hang on him the whole weight of his father's house, the offspring and issue, every small vessel from the cups to the flagons. Okay, so we, we've, we've got this text in Isaiah 22, and it gives kind of the job description, doesn't it? It says he's going to have uh, a robe. He's going to bind a girdle on him. He'll commit your authority to his hand. He'll, he'll be a father to the inhabitants of Jerusalem. I'm going to place on his shoulder the key of the house of David. And it says, and he shall open and none shall shut. He shall shut and none shall open. Now that is a juridical phrase 
that later would fall on the shoulders of the Sanhedrin in Jesus' day. And it, it means that they, they have the authority to allow and not allow teachings. So they have juridical power and authority. And that's where the authority resided in Jesus' day was the Sanhedrin. So you can see now that if we go back, or, or, or before we do that, look, look at this, verse 23. I'll fasten him like a peg in a sure place. What does that mean? Well, in the tents back then, they had all of the, the, the parts of the tent were, were held with tent pegs, but then all of the ropes were held together in a taut way, and one particular peg was driven into a sure place, which, which added stability to the tent, okay? And, and he will become a throne of honor to his father's house. He's going to uh, have the full weight of his father's house upon him. So this is the prime minister, the Al-Habayi. Now, with that understanding from the Old Testament, I didn't make this up. Catholic Church didn't make it up. We did not make this up that the prime minister has an office, clothed with a robe, had authority, referred to as a papa, possessed the keys to the house of David, had the power to bind and loose, fasten like a peg in a sure place, had a throne of honor, and the whole weight of his father's house hung on him. We didn't make that up. That's the prime minister. And the prototype to that is, is Joseph, even back in Egypt. So we didn't make this up. So when Jesus is going to establish his kingdom, and we are going to see him fulfilling every aspect of the Old Testament, well, the question is very easy. Who's going to be the prime minister of this new kingdom? Well, it's easy to answer, and I'll ask you the question. Who has the keys? It's very simple. Who's the prime minister in the new covenant? It's so easy. <laughs> Who's got the keys? Well, who do you think has the keys? Matthew 16, Jesus said, I'm giving you the keys to the kingdom. What you bind on earth is bound in heaven, and what you loose on earth is loosed in heaven. This means that Peter is the prime minister. He is the first pope out of 266 popes entrusted with running the kingdom when the king is away. And so we know that Jesus, after he died, he was buried, he rose from the dead, he ascended, and he, of course, before this, gives the keys to Peter. So we have Jesus entrusting this authority to Peter. And, and later we see we see just some beautiful things here, you know, that the church teaches us that, that Peter has the juridical power now to bind and loose, just like in Isaiah 22, and, and that connotes an authority to, you know, to absolve sins, to pronounce doctrinal judgments, make disciplinary decisions, so forth, in the church. It's great stuff. Love it. You can read about it in paragraph 553 in the uh, catechism. I'll put it in the notes for you. Well, why don't we do that? We'll just put it in the notes for you. But, uh, but then later in the New Testament, we see Simon Peter, or Cephas, uh, his name uh, is over, is, is, occurs nearly 200 times. And the names of, of all the other disciples combined only occur 130 times. You see, there's a primacy to Peter. There's a primacy to Peter. He is the leader. In the listing of the apostles in the New Testament, Peter is listed first, Matthew chapter 10. Peter was the spokesman and the authority, authoritative voice of the apostles in the early chapters of the book of Acts at the first council in Jerusalem. Uh, Paul spent 15 days in private with Peter before beginning his own apostolic ministry. 
So we see this continually over and over. The, the temple tax parable, uh, Matthew 17, the parable of the wise and faithful steward, Luke 12. I don't have the time today. Maybe in another podcast we can go into them. Uh, the controversy over the word rock in Matthew 16, all of them. Uh, Peter has primacy there. So uh, very, very powerful, very, very powerful. Uh, now, one of the controversies about this is the name. We call it the name game. I've heard some people uh, say that before. Uh, Jesus bestowed special uh, uh, prerogatives uh, on, on Peter. Uh, you know, recounted in Matthew 16, uh, Peter is given a new name, uh, which in Scripture denotes a change in status or, or position. Uh, kind of like in Genesis 17, Jesus spoke... Uh, um, in Genesis 17, there's some name changes. You can go back and look at that. But Jesus spoke Aramaic and, and gave Simon the Aramaic name uh, Kepha, rock, which is Petra in Greek and Peter in English. Uh, the Greek Petra is feminine, so the masculine Petros was, was adopted. There's no distinction between Kepha, the man, and, and Kepha, the rock, upon which Jesus would build his church. Peter is the rock. He is the rock. Now, this means a lot to us as Catholics. What does it mean? Uh, and I, I, think, I think what I'm going to do is do another, another show at some point to go through the whole issue of infallibility and, and uh, also what the early church fathers taught about this. Maybe we'll do that at another time. I've got plenty to, to share with you along those lines. But let's, let's wind this up because the show has gone on quite a while. Uh, what this means is this. Jesus is the master builder. And the last thing he does before he makes a beeline for Jerusalem to die for our sins, the Passion Week, is he establishes authority in his church. Now, that sounds like a wise builder, doesn't it? Now, this is going to mean for you certitude, a foundation, a certainty about what we believe and what has been passed on because the Holy Spirit is overseeing this whole process. Now, yes, there have been a few bad popes granted, but they never changed anything concerning what we believe. Moral failure, yes. Theological breakdown, no. We have this deposit of faith that Jesus passed on through apostolic succession, thanks to the chair of Peter. We have now this certitude to build our lives on. Let me ask you a question before we, before we close this out. I have been a big fan of Apple Computer for a long time. I like their products, you know, kind of a fanboy. <laughs> but Steve Jobs was a, was a master builder at Apple. Some people didn't like him, but you, you can't argue with the fact that this guy was a genius, kind of a modern Edison. It was, it was a wonder, people wondered when they found out he had pancreatic cancer and that it looked like he was going to pass away. People on Wall Street wondered how much of Apple's stock, which was the largest in the world, largest company, even above Exxon, they were wondering how much of that stock price was his name and his legacy. And they were wondering, was it 10%, 16%, 23 We didn't know. So... People were bracing for his death. What's going to happen to the stock? Guess what happened to the stock after he died? Nothing. And you know why? Because Steve Jobs saved for his last big thing the corporate ethos. It was the corporate atmosphere. It was his strategy that he 
passed on to Tim Cook. And he, he could be seen walking very uh, feebly with Tim Cook, passing on day after day after day, passing on the DNA of Apple to Tim Cook. Now, whether you like Apple or not, that's, that's inconsequential. Here's my question. Do you think Jesus is a better builder than Steve Jobs? I do. I think he's a better builder. And I think he's a better builder, and I think he did a better job. And he knew what he was doing when he gave the keys to Peter. Now, Peter is the first pope, and we have this succession of popes all the way through Pope Francis with number 266, and this has held us together. Now, I want to leave this now with a prayer and just encourage you to take, take, take you know, a sense of certitude out of this, uh, out of this show that, that you can rely on what the church has taught. You can rely on the chair of Peter because Jesus is the master builder. He is the master builder. Upon this rock I'll build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail. I'll give you the keys to the kingdom. What you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. What you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. We have a sure authority. We do. That doesn't mean that you necessarily want to bow to that authority. That's where humility comes in. But I can tell you this. Since coming back to the Catholic Church over 20-some years ago, I have never had such a sense of certitude and such a sense of authenticity than since I have come back. And yes, I do appreciate so much of my Protestant background, and I will never let go of it. The love for Scripture and praising God and opening up the home and praying for people on the street and all of that. But you know, we have a fullness of faith, thanks to the papacy, and we have the Eucharist, thanks to the papacy, because Jesus said to Peter, do you love me? Yes. Do you love me? Yes. Do you love me? Yes. Then feed my sheep. And that is the Eucharist. And every priest in the world that has been ordained is tied to Peter and has the authority to give us the greatest gift of grace, which is the Eucharist, the body and blood, soul and divinity. Not anybody can say those words. And bread turns into the body of Christ and wine into the body or the blood of Christ. No, it gets back to Peter to feed my sheep. Well, we're going to have to spend more shows on this. I think we've, uh, we've gone on for a while. Hey, I want, I want you to know that I'm praying for you. And, um, and I do encourage you to go to iTunes and Google Music Play. And Do I have that right? I think I got that right. If I don't, correct me. Um, and, and rank the show and give me your comments. And if you want the show notes automatically, give me an email. And I think we might uh, institute that here shortly. My email is thejeffcavenshow at ascensionpress.com. I welcome your ideas, show ideas, and I want to know how you are doing. Let's pray. In the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Lord, I thank you today for giving us life. And I thank you, Lord, for giving us a sure foundation in the papacy. This is your church. You built it, and you have given us authority. And Lord, we hear you when we hear Peter, and we trust you. We trust you. In Jesus' name, amen. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, have a great week, my friend. 